This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. You just listened to Associate Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan joke about how the Supreme Court may not necessarily be the best place to make sweeping decisions about something that they don't entirely understand. And that sentiment right there, I think, encapsulates the broader view that the justices had towards Section 230 in the case of Gonzalez v. Google. And court watchers seem to agree that the court is really apprehensive about making any sweeping changes here. For example, the Hill reports that the justices seemed puzzled during oral arguments, the LA Times deduced that the justices seemed wary of weakening Section 230, and the Washington Post gathered that they seemed to want to move more cautiously with regard to this particular case. Now, if you watched my coverage of this last week, you'll know that I was sounding the alarm because I was very worried that the Supreme Court justices wouldn't necessarily understand what's being argued here they don't have a good grasp of what the internet even is and why it's a public utility and why section 230 is absolutely necessary for the internet itself but it seems as if the supreme court justices actually understand the gravity of their decision should they choose to side with the plaintiffs here. Now let's go to the Washington Post where they're going to give us a broad overview of the justices' reaction to the oral arguments that they heard today. Supreme Court justices suggested Tuesday that they might move cautiously in their first examination of the federal law that protects internet companies from lawsuits concerning platforms posting of content from third parties. The justices heard more than two and a half hours of arguments regarding the claim by the family of an exchange student killed in an Islamic State attack that Google's YouTube should be liable for promoting content from the group. But justices across the ideological spectrum said they were confused by the arguments offered by the family's lawyer and worried that the court could undermine an effort by Congress to provide immunity for the platforms decades ago when lawmakers wanted to encourage the development of the internet. Now we're going to listen to a little bit more of what Elena Kagan said during questioning because I think that her questions here and comments kind of demonstrate the court's overall view, at least in my assessment. And that is that any changes that they make could have huge ramifications and there's a lot of uncertainty they don't necessarily know what is going to happen if they side with the plaintiffs so let's listen every other industry has to internalize the costs of his conduct why is it that the tech industry gets a pass a little bit unclear on the other hand i mean we're a court we really don't know about these things you know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. <laughs> and I don't have to, I don't have to accept all Ms. Blatt's the sky is falling stuff to accept something about, boy, there is a lot of uncertainty about going the way uh, you would have us go, in part just because of the difficulty of drawing lines in this area. And just because of the fact that once we go with you, all of a sudden, we're finding that Google isn't protected. And 
maybe Congress should want that system. But it, isn't that something for Congress to do, not the court? I think that she did a really good job of explaining the difficulty in trying to draw these arbitrary lines. And as a liberal justice, in theory at least, you expect her to kind of want to be more rigorous in her questioning against big tech companies. But in this instance, it's not just about protecting big tech companies, it's about protecting all of us. So in order for free speech and individuals like myself to win, we need Google to win in this instance because this is about the internet as a whole being a public utility and these social media platforms that exist because of these tech giants, if they are fearful of lawsuits and they think that allowing us to post content on their websites is going to lead to them going bankrupt or getting sued, then they're just not gonna allow us to post. So in order for the internet to exist in the way that it is today, we need section 230, which is essentially arguably the law that created the internet as it is today, that needs to stand. Now, one thing that the plaintiffs were arguing, at least the Solicitor General, because they are siding with the plaintiffs here, is that, well, sure, you're saying that this could open them up to a lot of lawsuits, but those lawsuits won't be won but they're not buying it. And you may be surprised to learn who is actually siding with us here, with internet freedom. And I'm actually honestly surprised by Brett Kavanaugh of all people. The Washington Post continues. Kagan and Justice Brett M. Kavanaugh suggested a ruling on behalf of the Gonzalez family could unleash a wave of lawsuits. Kavanaugh did not seem persuaded when Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm L. Stewart, representing the Justice Department and siding in part with the plaintiffs, said few lawsuits would have much likelihood of prevailing. Quote, isn't it better to keep it the way it is? Kavanaugh replied, for us to put the burden on Congress to change that and they can consider the implications and make these predictive judgments? Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been a critic of big tech companies and the protections they received, said Tuesday that he was unsure how YouTube could be said to be aiding and abetting terrorism when its neutral algorithms worked the same way whether a viewer was seeking information on the Islamic State or how to make rice pilaf. Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. wondered whether recommending a similar video to someone who has expressed interest in a subject is not the 21st century equivalent of a bookseller pointing a customer asking about sports books to the section of the store where they are kept. Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Kagan told Eric Schnappner, a lawyer for the Gonzalez family, that his argument about algorithmic recommendations was very broad. So at the risk of sounding overly optimistic here, because I'm still cautiously optimistic, it does seem, at least to me, as if the justices understand what's at stake here and they realize that the plaintiff's argument is very, very broad. Now, to give you a sense as to what the justices are responding to here, let's hear a little bit of the arguments from the plaintiffs. I think that the task for this court is to apply the statute the way it was written. And if I might return to a point that Justice Alito made, um, much of what goes on now didn't exist in 1996. The statute was written to address one or two very specific problems about defamation cases. Um, and it drew uh, lines around certain kinds of things and protected those. It did not and could not have written, been written in such a way to protect everything else that might come along that was highly desirable. Congress didn't adopt a regulatory scheme. They protected a few things. It will inevitably happen, and has happened, that uh, companies have devised practices 
which are maybe highly laudable, but they don't fit within the four walls of the statute. So what he's essentially arguing is that Section 230 was originally written to protect websites from defamation, but to extend that to algorithms, something that didn't exist at the time that the law was written, that violates the law, right? That violates the intent that the lawmakers had. So, in other words, what he's arguing is that an algorithm can, in effect, aid and abet terrorists by recommending an Islamic State video to a viewer. But the justices aren't buying that, including Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, what's remarkable about this next clip that we're going to listen to here is that Clarence Thomas was originally the only justice, to my knowledge, that was vocally against Section 230. And that's because he's a Trump sycophant and Donald Trump was saying we should overturn Section 230. But Clarence Thomas here is not buying the argument from the plaintiffs here. What if the uh, YouTube, instead of automatically providing this list, uh, which is hard, it's hard for me because I don't see this, as, I see these as suggestions and not really recommendations because they don't really comment on them. But what if you had to click on something like for more like this, click here, would that also be uh, as far as you're concerned, aiding and abetting. If, in terms of aiding and abetting, if someone comes to me and says, what's uh, uh, al-Baghdadi's phone call, a uh, phone number I'd like to call him, uh, and I give him the phone number, I'm aiding and abetting, even if I'm, I don't say, and I hope you'll join ISIS. Whether we label it a recommendation or not, on our view, is not the issue here. We tried to say that in our brief. I mean, if you call uh, information and ask for Abadadi's uh, number and they give it to you, I don't see how that's aiding and abetting. And I don't understand how a neutral suggestion about something that you've expressed an interest in uh, is aiding and abetting. I'm actually shocked because I never knew that Clarence Thomas had the capacity to be reasonable, even minimally. So I agree with what he's saying here. I think that for you to claim that YouTube in having this content there and recommending it is tantamount to like aiding and abetting terrorists is insane. It's just, it's an insane argument that the plaintiffs are making. And I sympathize with them. I understand that they don't want this to happen to another family, right? I understand their fears here, but changing the internet, destroying the internet potentially as we know it is not the way that you seek change. So what we're seeing here is a sort of skewing of partisan lines on the Supreme Court because traditionally you expect the conservative justices to side with big business here and liberals to kind of be a little bit more skeptical towards big business, but both sides seem to understand here that if they side with the plaintiffs, then the internet as we know it could be a thing of the past. And that's just not necessarily something that should be done by the Supreme Court. The plaintiffs are essentially asking them to behave as legislators when this, if there is gonna be a remedy at all, it needs to be in the hands of Congress. And I would agree with that. I don't think that there should be a remedy. I think that there are ways to rein in big tech, such as antitrust legislation, laws requiring more transparency, even nationalization, if you ask me. But having the Supreme Court litigate this here and make this broad change that affects all of us on the internet, I'm just not okay with that. Now, one surprise was um, Kentanji Brown Jackson. She, of all the justices, seems to be siding with the plaintiffs here at the most. And you kind of expect liberals, in theory, to side more with the individuals who want to hold these big businesses accountable. And that's a good instinct to have, but not in this instance. So let me show you what I mean by this. So her line of, uh, line of questioning towards Google, the defense attorneys here, 
was very, very aggressive. And I don't know if she's just playing devil's advocate, but what she said kind of um, worried me a little bit. If you look at the statute, it says protection for Good Samaritan blocking and screening. If you take into account uh, Stratman uh, Oakmont, if that, those things I thought were like a given, what, what the people who were crafting this statute were worried about was filth on the internet and the extent to which, because of that uh, a court case and, and perhaps others, and so the statute is like, we want you to take these things down. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that just because they're on your, your, your website, it doesn't mean you're going to be held automatically liable for it. And that's C1. And to the extent you're in C2, you're trying to take it down, but you don't get them all. We're not going to hold you liable for it. That seems to me to be a very narrow scope of immunity that doesn't cover whether or not you are making recommendations or promoting or doing anything else. What I understand the government and the petitioner to be saying is that disseminating, even 24-7 disseminating of ISIS videos is protected. The only thing that's not protected is whether you can tease out something about the organization and call it a recommendation when there is no express speech recommending it. It's just the uh, placement of where in the order in which content appears. And that same complaint could be made about search engines. So I think under your view, search engines would not be covered because they are taking user information, targeting recommendations in the sense of they're saying, we think you would be interested in the first content as opposed to the content on, you know, 1,692 sections. I mean, they have millions and millions of hits for any search result. And if you think those are recommendations and the other side gives you no basis for distinguishing between search engines, then the statute is just very different than what I think the one that Congress was talking about. Because again, if you're going to look at findings, and history and policy. This is about diversity of viewpoints, jumpstarting an industry, having information flourishing on the internet and free speech. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that she inherently accepts the argument from the plaintiffs here. And she thinks that Section 230 should be destroyed. Perhaps she agrees with me that there needs to be more regulations on these big tech companies. I think that's a perfectly reasonable stance to take. But to get rid of Section 230, that is something that we need to protect all of us. Again, it's a little bit counterintuitive because in order for the little guy to win, we need big tech to win in this instance. Because if these companies are no longer going to allow us to publish content because they're fearful of lawsuits, then we don't have a voice on the internet. Social media as a utility, the internet as a public utility, is no longer a thing. So we need big business in this one limited instance to win, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold these big tech giants accountable, right? And so Kentanji Brown-Jackson, she's seemingly siding with the plaintiffs here, but we can't know for sure until the decision is released. So in conclusion, it seems as if at least based on preliminary oral arguments that we're hearing from today, it's not as bad as I thought, the Supreme Court justices, even though they may be ignorant to the internet and technology, they understand the gravity of the situation and how their decision here can have monumental impacts on the entire internet and democracy itself. Now, this is just one case. Remember that tomorrow they're going to be hearing Twitter v. Tamanau, but at least the sense that I got today from, from the Supreme Court is that they're not so willing to just straight up destroy the internet. 
And maybe that's because the conservative justices and even the liberal justices just want to inherently side with big tech. Either way, I don't care. What I care about is the result. And if them siding with big business, them siding with Google here, save Section 230 and freedom of speech on the internet, then I'm all for it. So I'm a little bit encouraged here, but cautiously optimistic to emphasize. Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News for defamation over the election lies that they spread in 2020, and they're seeking $1.6 billion in damages. Now, if they win, I don't necessarily know that if they're fully rewarded, that's enough to bankrupt Fox News, but I'm certainly crossing my fingers. Now, thanks to the discovery process, we're getting to see some of the text messages between Fox News hosts, and they are very interesting because it confirms that they knew that Trump's big lie was indeed that, a lie. But on top of that, they're also very fearful of Fox News and fearful of their audience. And they were worried that if they didn't play into Trump's narrative, that they would lose support and potentially be outflanked from the right by other far-right outlets such as Newsmax and OAN. So here's a couple of messages that we're going to look at, specifically sent by Tucker Carlson. These, I think, are very, very telling in particular. These were described by Slate. On November 5th, Carlson seemed to acknowledge that there was a financial incentive for Fox News to go along with Trump's fraudulent claims about the election, while also acknowledging just how dangerous they were. Quote, we worked really hard to build what we have. Those f***ers are destroying our credibility. It enrages me. The primetime host continued to express to the producer his belief that his team had to kowtow to Trump. Quote, what Trump's good at is destroying things. He's the undisputed world champion of that. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. He also told a producer, do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? We're playing with fire for real. An alternative like Newsmax could be devastating to us. On November 10th, Carlson said to his producer that it had been a mistake to not present Trump's voter fraud claims while also acknowledging, I just hate this shit. <laughs> On November 12th, Carlson took another turn talking about Fox reporter Jacqui Heinrich's tweet fact-checking the lies Trump and certain Fox News hosts were spewing about Dominion. He texted Sean Hannity, please get her fired. Seriously, what the f***? I'm actually shocked. It needs to stop immediately, like tonight. It's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Not a joke. Carlson then informed Hannity that he just went crazy on an executive over Heinrich's accurate reporting. The next morning, Heinrich deleted her tweet. Wow. Around November 16th, Carlson was sharing with his producer his thoughts on the statements Powell was making, which Fox News had been airing. Quote, Sidney Powell is lying, f***ing he also described Powell as unguided missile and dangerous as hell, calling her a crazy person. On November 8th, Carlson told fellow host Laura Ingram that Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Of Powell's and Giuliani's claims about fraud, Carlson said, it's unbelievably offensive to me. Our viewers are good people and they believe it. On November 21st, Carlson sent a text message saying it was shockingly reckless to accuse Dominion of fraud without some proof, which he insisted there isn't. He also referred to Powell as a nutcase. And on January 6th of 2021, after the insurrection attempt, Carlson texted a producer that Trump was a demonic force, a destroyer, but he's not going to destroy us. So this is fascinating to me because it gives us all a bit of a behind the scenes look at the way that propaganda is manufactured. For years now, Tucker Carlson has very carefully crafted a propaganda program that is highly effective, but just like that, somebody who's more influential than him, Donald Trump, 
could undermine this credibility that he's built up with his audience. And these text messages and some, they demonstrate a real dilemma between the need to tell the truth or the desire to tell the truth and not wanting to go along with a narrative, but then feeling pressure to do so because if you don't, then um, it's going to hurt your credibility. And they were right to fear their credibility taking a hit with their audience because a morning consult poll conducted between November 9th and 16th found that Fox News' approval rating among Republican viewers had nosedived. So their average approval dropped 13 points and their unfavorability almost hit 30%. Again, this is among Republicans. So you see this sharp decline in support. And that's because Fox News didn't explicitly go along with Trump's election lies. Now, they still platformed it. They aired the press conferences of Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. But what what the audiences were looking for from Fox News's hosts was bias confirmation. They wanted to be affirmed in their belief that the election was stolen and Trump couldn't possibly lose. Now, Trump uh, or Fox News rather still did enough to where they're being sued for defamation. And I think you can argue that Dominion has a very solid case because what county is going to want to use Dominion voting systems now after they have been thoroughly slandered by Sidney Powell, Donald Trump, and these lies were amplified by Fox News. I mean, they have a very solid case. So to see Fox News hosts in the background scramble while just kind of playing the press conferences, playing the insanity, trying to really ride the fence there. It's so fascinating. Now, what did they do next? That's the question, right? Because they didn't do enough to play to Trump's base here and give into his lies. So what did they do to regain credibility? Well, they did damage control. That's what they did. So basically, rather than explicitly saying that Trump's big lies were correct, they pandered to this audience. So there's a segment from Tucker Carlson that aired, I believe, January 26th of 2021. And what he did there, it really demonstrates how effective he is as a propagandist because he brings on Mike Lindell, right? Mike Lindell was just deplatformed from multiple outlets because he was spreading lies about Dominion and the 2020 election. So Tucker Carlson brings him on. And rather than trying to get to the bottom of these claims and debunk what he's saying or press him on these claims, Tucker Carlson frames this in a different way. So that way he can carefully platform these ideas while not explicitly lending credits to these claims. So Mike Lindell is going to be the victim of a censorship campaign. And that's the way that Tucker Carlson is going to present this information to his audience. January 26th, by the way, 2021. And, um, just watch what he says after Mike Lindell is done saying these insane lies that we now know Tucker believed to be untrue. I've been all in trying to find the machine fraud and we found it. We have all the evidence. So what all these all these outlets that have been calling me from the Washington Post, New York Times, every every outlet in the country, they go, Mike Lindell, there's no evidence and he's making fraudulent statements. No, I have the evidence. I dare people to put it on. I dare Dominion to sue me because then it would get out faster. So this is it, you know, they don't they don't want to talk about it. They don't want no, to say they, they just say, oh, you're wrong. And I'm going, well, they're, you know, they're what? not making conspiracy theories go away by doing that. You don't answer. Right. You don't you don't make oh. people kind of calm down and get reasonable and moderate by censoring them. You make them yeah. way crazier. Of course, this is like ridiculous. Yeah. They, like, you know, I, why wouldn't everybody want to know the truth of this country? Just let let the truth be told. If there's nothing to hide, let's bring it out so we all yeah, can see it. Instead, they're exactly. trying to erase Mike Lindell and erase my pillow. Well, I'm not going to be erased. 
I mean, all these, all my friends that lost their, they lost their YouTube channels. They lost their Facebook, 2 million followers. One guy has 12 employees. He's gone. His livelihood he built up is just gone. Um, anybody, any business churches that supported the president, that's a whole nother issue. They're being attacked and they're going to be just, you know, canceled. No, I've, I've noticed. Mike Lindell, I really appreciate your coming on tonight. Thank you very well, much. Well, thank you, Tucker. Thanks for having me on, and God bless you. Thank you. Amen. God bless you. Mike Lindell, he sells pillows. Why has he been censored? And by the way, before you say, oh, it's Mike Lindell. Who... Anyone who's censored has been wronged as an American, period. And the censorship of any person diminishes the rest of us and diminishes this country, period. It doesn't matter what they're saying. It doesn't matter whether you agree with them. So as you saw there, no pushback whatsoever. Maybe Tucker Carlson disagrees with Mike Lindell, but certainly regardless if they agree or disagree, that's no excuse for censorship. That right there is a very effective propaganda tactic, right? Because you're not actually addressing the substance. You're not trying to, in your capacity as a journalist, get to the bottom of what the truth is. You're just platforming these ideas and you're presenting the individual spreading these false claims as the victim, a victim of censorship. Doesn't free speech matter above all? This is why I say Tucker Carlson is a very effective propagandist because he knows what he's doing. He knows how to sit on the fence and appease both sides. And he wasn't doing that because Trump was very adamant that every single person echo what he was saying. But by January 26, Tucker Carlson was able to regain control of the narrative. At that time, Trump was deplatformed. He couldn't spew that message on Twitter. He didn't have Truth Social at the time. So Tucker Carlson was able to monopolize the narrative once again. And guess what? It worked because a year later, Fox News's credibility had fully recovered and tucker carlson was able to promote the big lie in order to regain credibility among fox's audience while not explicitly endorsing it himself that is very clever very very clever so this shows you how propaganda works and if fox news's audience genuinely cared about the truth they would see these text messages and they would think wow this is very clearly a network with an agenda they very clearly are trying to push a message and they care more about the bottom line than the truth but that's not going to happen. This is an audience of individuals who just want their biases to be affirmed. They don't care about the truth. They just want to be told every single day that Democrats bad, socialism bad, communism bad, Trump good. That's it. That's why they tune in. And the second that Fox News deviates away, they will stray to an alternative. Now, lucky for Fox News, OAN and Newsmax are not actually good competitors to Fox News at this point in time because Fox News, I think, rode that line very, very well, getting that credibility back. But this is really interesting because, again, anytime you are confronted with somebody who actually believes the lies spewed by individuals at, at Fox News, be it Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, or Sean Hannity, show them these text messages. It's probably not going to convince them but it's at least some evidence that validates the point that these are actors and they don't care about truth. They don't care about objectivity. They care about an agenda and framing the narrative, period, end of story. Now, this isn't surprising to you or myself, but maybe a few Fox News viewers will see this and think, oh, okay, I'd rather care about seeking the truth more than anything. Doubtful, but I mean, we're talking small numbers, maybe one or two people out of the whole country. So, you know, we'll work with what we can, but either way, very, very fascinating. And Fox News hosts were frauds, but you already knew that, I'm sure. 
it will never not be funny to me that billionaire Elon Musk basically bought Twitter specifically so he could impress his right-wing friends and boost his own posts, get more clout for being the owner of Twitter. Now, this has basically been confirmed over the course of the last couple of weeks, and it's really embarrassing. And what does he do? He chooses to joke about all of the pathetic things that he's done as the owner of Twitter. Hey, Elon, if you want people to like you, why don't you just make Twitter work again? That would be one place to start. I mean, Twitter, since he's taken over, since he's fired so many engineers, doesn't function in the way that it used to. The platform sometimes is broken and unusable, but instead he just wants to make sure that we prioritize seeing his dumb banal tweets first. So let's go to The Verge here, where they explain in recent weeks, Musk has been obsessed with the amount of engagement his posts are receiving. Last week, Platformer broke the news that he fired one of two remaining principal engineers at the company after the engineer told him that views on his tweets are declining in part because interest in Musk has declined in general. His deputies told the rest of the engineering team this weekend that if the engagement issue wasn't fixed, they would all lose their jobs as well. This reminds me of Dr. Evil. I mean, imagine pulling engineers into a room and saying, you better make sure people see my tweets and people like my tweets, otherwise you're fired. This is embarrassing. Like if you gave Twitter to a 12 year old, I can guarantee that any random 12 year old you pluck from the street would be more mature and handle this website, like be the lead of this website in a much more competent way than Elon Musk. This is what he prioritized. Now, what was really the straw that broke the camel's back for Elon Musk was the fact that his dumbass Super Bowl tweet didn't get as much engagement as Joe Biden's, this tweet in particular, because apparently everybody was supposed to cream in their pants over this tweet where he says, go Eagles with a bunch of flag emojis. I just, <laughs> I just, I don't know what to say. Like, if you want people to like your tweets, tweet better, get good. I, I, I like, why do you even care this much? That's the thing. When it comes to Twitter and social media in general, I've really reduced my consumption. I don't use Twitter as much. I rarely ever log on to Facebook anymore unless it's to upload videos to the Humanist Reports YouTube channel. It just, I don't care. I, maybe that's just me. I don't get the dopamine that I used to get from likes and engagement on social media. But for him, that really is the one way that he finds value in life. Because when you have so much money that you can't even spend it, even if you're lucky enough to live to be 10,000 years old, you start looking for other ways to find value and meaning in life. And I'm assuming that social media is where he derives that value. But let's get back to the story here because it gets better because they found a solution for him. Late Sunday night, Musk addressed his team in person. Roughly 80 people were pulled into work on the project, which had quickly become priority number one at the company. Oh my God. Employees worked through the night investigating various hypotheses about why Musk's tweets weren't reaching as many people as he thought they should and testing out possible solutions. By Monday afternoon, the problem had been fixed. Twitter deployed code to automatically greenlight all of Musk's tweets, meaning his posts will bypass Twitter's filters designed to show people the best content possible. The algorithm now artificially boosted Musk's tweets by a factor of 1,000, a constant score that ensured his tweets rank higher than anyone else's in the feed. I mean, imagine frantically working on something, staying up all night just so that way your boss's tweets get seen more. I feel so bad for the Twitter employees and they need to unionize. But if they do unionize, well, that's not going to go very well for them because Elon Musk 
is a notorious union buster. More on that in a second here. But let's uh, let's look at the tweet that he made. I don't know if he stole this meme or not because he often does steal memes, but he tweeted this out in response to this story once it went viral. It is a meme where he jokes about how he's basically shoving himself down everyone's throats, and that's apparently supposed to make him more endearing and not make him seem like a petulant imbecile. <sighs> what do you even say? What do you even say that hasn't already been said about Elon Musk? Him buying Twitter has, I think, lifted this veil to where people can now see that we don't live in a meritocracy, right? Billionaires aren't rich because they're smart or talented. He's a dumbass. Quite frankly, he's a dumbass and he is deeply unlikable. And the only reason why right-wingers are even giving him the time of day is because he interacts with them, so there's clout, and also because they think that he's going to stop the shadow banning or censorship of them on the platform, and they're still mad at him. He personally runs errands for Cat Turd. That was priority number one when he took over Twitter, and Cat Turd still doesn't like him, at least last time I checked. So it's ridiculous. So for him to do this to his employees, make them work through the entire night, firing them on the spot, this is why they need to unionize. But here's what happened when a Buffalo, New York Tesla factory tried to unionize. In fact, last week they sent Elon Musk a notification letting him know that they do intend to form a union and he fired dozens of them in direct retaliation, which is illegal, by the way. Now, as Kenny Stansel explains, in a complaint filed with the U.S. National Labor Relations Board, the Union Workers United accused the electric vehicle manufacturer of illegally terminating the employees in retaliation for union activity and to discourage union activity, Bloomberg first reported on Thursday. The union asked the NLRB to pursue a federal court injunction to prevent irreparable destruction of employee rights resulting from Tesla's unlawful conduct. Yeah, and that action right there is further evidence as to why anyone who works for Elon Musk needs a union because he will fire you like that for completely arbitrary and childish reasons. You can't do this to people, okay? You are their boss, regardless if they love you or hate you, and their livelihood depends on you and your mood seemingly. So you can't just pull the rug out from under them on a whim because they're not giving you an answer that you want or because they want to form a union. Maybe they wouldn't want to form a union if you weren't such a terrible boss. I mean, they should want to since you're exploiting them. I mean, you're a billionaire and they're not. But for you to continuously subject your workers to terrible working conditions like this and punish them when they try to unionize, it's just ridiculous. Remember, he also fired the janitorial staff at Twitter when they try to go on strike. I mean, he is a notorious union buster and he does this because he's getting away with it. So he's a bad person. He's an exploitative asshole. And on top of that, he's just a petty piece of shit. So at this point in time, if you're defending Elon Musk still and he still has many simps, then I think that that says more about you than him. I mean, because at this point, if you can't see that this man is an imbecile and a phony, then I think you're just gullible. I'm sorry, but it's true. Residents in East Palestine, Ohio, were told that the water in their town was safe after a train derailment poisoned them. Now, they're not buying it, and I think for good reason. The video that we just watched demonstrates that it very clearly is not normal, at a minimum, right? But the governor is trying to do everything in his power to convince them 
that it is safe and everything is copacetic when in actuality, when he made this declaration, he didn't have the full picture. And we'll get to that. But first, as Chris D'Angelo of HuffPost explains, the testing that Ohio authorities relied on to declare the municipal water in East Palestine safe to drink after a disastrous train derailment was funded by the railroad operator itself and did not initially comply with federal standards, HuffPost has learned. Although the drinking water in East Palestine may indeed be safe, as officials have repeatedly stressed in recent days, independent experts argue the initial batch of samples that a consulting firm hired by the rail company collected and some Submitted to the lab should not have been used to make such a determination. The lab report on the railroad funded sampling indicates the samples were not handled in accordance with federal Environmental Protection Agency standards. Sam Bickley, an aquatic ecologist at Virginia Scientist Community Interface, an advocacy focused coalition of scientists and engineers, alerted HuffPost to the sampling errors and called the report extremely concerning. The results that claim there were no contaminants is not a reliable finding, he said via email. I find this extremely concerning because these results would not be used in most scientific applications because the samples were not preserved properly and this is the same data they are now relying on to say that the drinking water is not contaminated. David Erickson, a hydrogeologist and the founder of Water and Environmental Technologies, an environmental consulting firm in Montana, called the sampling sloppy and amateur. Now, experts are saying that the reason why these results aren't trustworthy is because in one of the samples, there was an air bubble. Now, the reason why that's bad is because additional contaminants can get trapped within that air bubble. And if they are, well, then they will go undetected, which means that that is a massive sampling error. But Norfolk Southern is saying, well, it's just a recording error. No, it's not just a recording error. That is a sampling error that throws the results into question. Now, citizens in East Palestine aren't buying it, and I think rightfully so. In this close to the, the train derailment, I don't trust it. I am frustrated. Here I am. I just moved seven months ago. I busted my ass to make this place look like it does, and I got to move because I'm not safe being here. There is no way we are safe being here. Deb Blair, a cashier at the Sparkle Market in East Palestine, says bottled water has been flying off the shelves. Water is the big thing here right now. Everybody is wanting water. They don't want to drink the water. They don't want to give it to their animals, you know. This is worse than what everybody thought it was. And the people in town are afraid. And they're scared for good reason. Now, Republican Governor Mike DeWine rushed to declare the state's water safe before they even had the state's results back in. So he was satisfied with the samples from Norfolk Southern and immediately, as quick as he could, said, yep, everything is fine now, when that was wrong because when the state's results came in, it confirmed the suspicion of residents. As Common Dreams explains, the Biden administration said in a press call Friday that Norfolk Southern has not been solely behind the testing that's been conducted so far, with the spokesperson telling reporters it's been with the Columbiana County Health Department collecting samples along with Norfolk Southern and sending those as split samples to two different labs for verification. The state EPA, however, did not receive the health department's results until after DeWine declared the water safe based on ACOM's flawed testing 
testing. The lab report shows low levels of the chemical dibutyl phthalate, which is not linked to cancer in humans, but can cause headaches, nausea, dizziness, irritation of the eyes and throat, and seizures. Some of the residents who were told days after the derailment that they could safely return to East Palestine have reported symptoms, including headaches, nausea, dizziness, and shortness of breath. So do you understand the issue here? Residents are being told that the water is safe, but the water contains contaminants, at least in the short term, that's making them sick. As former state representative Rob Whitworth put it, the loss of credibility by public health agencies has and will continue to have disastrous real world consequences. And he is exactly correct about that. Remember how corporations pressured the CDC to loosen testing requirements in order to ease the labor shortage during the second year of the pandemic? Well, they did that. They complied with big business. Americans remember these things. They remember how time after time the government sides with corporations and their profit motives over the people. And it's sickening. This is just another example of that. Now, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is pretending to be powerless, but don't you worry, because as ABC News reports, he wrote a strongly worded letter to Norfolk Southern, and I'm sure that they are shaking in their boots after reading that. Now, to be fair, the lever reports that the Department of Transportation is expanding rules that seemingly require more transparency from these types of companies, but transparency alone is insufficient. These companies need to know that it will cost them greatly if they cut costs at the expense of the communities that they're supposed to be serving. They need to fear nationalization. They need to fear so many fines that they will be put out of business if they do not do what is necessary to maintain safe standards. But they know that the worst that they have to fear oftentimes is a little slap on the wrist and a pure disaster that can be cleaned up with time. Americans will forget with time. They know that the government doesn't represent the people and the government is squarely in the camp of these large multinational corporations. Just last year, Congress voted to break a strike at the behest of these railroad companies who refused to give their workers a single day of paid sick time. So we all know who the government represents. It's not us. It's, it's these large multi-billion dollar companies who put profits over people. And that is sickening. And this is just another example that proves that this is the way that it is. I don't think the left would ever stop. I don't think they'll ever stop trying to invade our states or our counties. So how do we stop them? Well, I think that, you know, red states could choose and uh, how they allow people to vote in their states. For example, um, over the past couple of years, we've seen a mass exodus from California and New York, uh, where we've seen people fleeing uh, those leftist policies and moving to states like Florida, Georgia, Texas, um, you know, states where they they like the tax policies, they they like the schools, they li they like the consequences of Republican and red policies. Um, what I think would be something that some red states could propose is, well, okay, if if Democrat voters uh, choose to flee these blue states where they cannot tolerate the living conditions, they don't want their children taught these horrible things, and they really change their mind on the types of policies that they support, well, once they move to a red state, guess what? Maybe you don't get to vote for five years. You can live there, you can work there, but you don't get to bring your values that you that you basically created in the blue states you came from by voting for Democrat leaders and Democrat policies. But this would be up to, to red states to be able to choose to do something like that so that their red states don't get changed which is what's happening, um, unfortunately, when Democrat voters leave their Democrat states and they take their Democrat votes with them. 
Um, that would be something that these red states would have to really consider and choose to do. But I'm a big believer in freedom, Charlie. But I'm also um, a big believer in defending our ability uh, to pursue life and liberty and happiness. And the left is completely destroying that for those of us on the right. That was psychopathic and authoritarian lawmaker Marjorie Taylor Greene's bright idea for stopping leftists from invading red states. You simply ban them from voting for five years. Hmm. Sounds very, very democratic. It's all part of her brilliant idea for a national divorce, which, by the way, is definitely not secession. Now, she initially floated this idea on Twitter this Monday, saying, quote, we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this, from the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. So in other words, she's calling for secession. Now, the last time states tried to secede, it triggered a civil war that was very bloody. But she assures us that that's not what she wants. She just wants a national divorce and secession, but secession light? Here's what she means. On Tuesday, she penned a lengthy thread on Twitter where she elaborated on these dumbass ideas a little bit. Why the left and right should consider a national divorce, not a civil war, but a legal agreement to separate our ideological and political disagreements by states while maintaining our legal union. Definition of irreconcilable differences, inability to agree on most things or on important things. Tragically, I think we, the left and right, have reached irreconcilable differences. I'll speak for the right and say we are absolutely disgusted and fed up with the left cramming and forcing their ways on us and our children with no respect for our religion and faith, traditional values, and economic and government policy beliefs. She actually is going through a divorce with her husband, so maybe that's why the word divorce is on her mind. But in essence, the way that you remedy these irreconcilable differences, according to her, is to shrink the size of the federal government so it's so small that it can fit inside bedrooms and bathrooms, and you essentially let states be as fascistic and authoritarian as they want to be, and that's how you remedy the problem that we're currently experiencing. Not only is it a stupid idea, but it's blatantly unconstitutional. However, she's going to explain what this Christo-fascist dystopian ideal would look like in practice on Charlie Kirk's show. Now, we already heard that it would involve red states being able to ban people who move from blue states from voting. But here's what else she's envisioning. This is her perfect view of society. Well, a national divorce is not a civil war. It's actually separating by red states and blue states um, and making state rights and state power a lot stronger than it is right now. Um, it would be shrinking the federal government. For example, we can take education. Well, if we have a national divorce, there's no need for the Department of Education. Red states and blue states would be in control of the education in each state. Red states would very likely um, have traditional education, homeschooling, uh, charter schools, private schools, technical schools. They would not allow any type of gender lies being taught in their schools. LGBTQ woke teachers would be fired and not allowed to teach there. Um, they would allow parents to be able to choose the curriculum uh, instead of school boards that, that don't respect parents' beliefs and traditional family values. Um, and it may be in blue states, they would have full gender transition schools for their students. I don't know what they would do, but I'm sure their education do would you, look different than ours. 
No, just just to make sure I understand, do, are you argue, arguing for separate nations? No, not separate nations, not at all, because I believe in the United States of America and don't want to see that go away. I believe that we still need a strong United States military, but the Department of Defense should return to its original um, in, uh, charter and intent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's supposed its mission is to defend our borders and our national security. And, you know, under what I'm talking about, that's what our Department of Defense would do. It wouldn't be more interested in fighting foreign wars and defending foreign countries' borders. Yes. It would defend the United States' borders so that each state could exist um, how it chooses to, sure. to exist. Interesting. So if you were to ask me or any leftist what our ideal vision for society would be, it would look very different, right? Imagining a place where there's democracy in the workplace. Every single citizen has healthcare that's free at the point of service. We expand freedom, civil rights, civil liberties, and overall, we make sure that people can afford to live comfortably so. There are social services that take care of people. But her, well, her ideal society includes dismantling public education and firing teachers who are gay. Now, I love how she also says that in this version of her society, well, the military would defend borders instead. But the problem with that is, wouldn't you want states to have their own militaries? Because if you're already re rewriting the Constitution and allowing red states to violate the Constitution and be authoritarian, then why would you keep the current federal military? Wouldn't you want to change that and federalize that as well so states have their own individual militaries? It just, it doesn't really make sense, and her vision is pretty incoherent, but she views this as a win-win because the right could let their freak flags fly while the left can give bottom surgeries to children at elementary schools because that's exactly what they want. So it sounds like what she's proposing is a more complicated version of the philosophy live and let live. But the problem is that according to her, it's the blue states that want to force their ideology on everyone else. Now, she says this after being the lawmaker that introduced legislation to push her ideology on everyone else that would ban medically necessary gender affirming care for trans youth. And on top of that, Republicans have proposed nationwide bans on things like abortion. She herself literally identifies as a Christian nationalist, which means that the government is subordinate to God, which gives people like her divine authority to dictate how everyone else lives their lives and mandate that we all live according to her interpretation of her holy book. But she says the problem is us. No, Marjorie, the problem is you. We have irreconcilable differences, yes, because Christian nationalists like yourself want to dictate how we live our lives. Now, there's two main reasons why what she's proposing here is a terrible idea. Idea. First and foremost, I don't want to abandon working class people, LGBTQ plus people, people of color in red states. Every single one of us deserve a life with dignity. And you shouldn't have a terrible life because you were unlucky enough to be born in a state controlled by a theocratic nut job. Like there should be national standards for all of us, standards of living, standards of education, and so on and so forth.
Second, shrinking the federal government would be catastrophic in particular for red states. As you can see from this graph here, red states overall are more federally dependent. Seven out of the 10 states who are most dependent on the federal government are red states. But why is this? Well, it comes down to policy. Quote, Democratic-leaning blue states tend to be wealthier and pay more to the federal government than they get in. In contrast, Republican-leaning red states tend to have less wealth and receive more federal government funds than they pay. A really conservative state might choose to tax itself at a lower rate, which means by default they can give fewer state-funded services, explains Kathy Fallon, Human Services Practice Area's director at Public Consulting Group. Quote, that can exacerbate the situation. So in other words, red states rely on the federal government to keep taxes low in the first place for rich people and corporations. And if Marjorie Taylor Greene actually got what she wanted, those red states would be forced to act more like blue states in order to balance their budgets. Now, the federal government subsidizes state and local governments in areas like healthcare, education, roads and bridges. And without that money, states would suffer greatly, especially red states. And let's get back to what this is really about in the first place. It's not about the way that states should be structured. What Marjorie Taylor Greene wants is a dystopian, Christo-fascist hellscape that she knows would be unconstitutional. Her ideal society isn't legal under the current constraints of the Constitution. And that's what this is really about. She wants right-wing authoritarians to be able to subvert the Constitution and do what they want, create many Christian equivalents of Saudi Arabia in Alabama and West Virginia. But I'm sorry, no, what you're calling for is secession. What you're calling for is a completely different country, unlike the one that we currently have today. And it's all because you refuse to let others live in a way that you don't deem fit. The problem is you. It's not that the wokists are pushing their agenda on you. It's that you are pushing your reprehensible reactionary agenda on everyone else. And if you just f***ed off and let people live in the way that they want to live, then we wouldn't be fighting each other. Yes, we have irreconcilable differences, but in a liberal society, there's this expectation that we allow people to do what they want to do so long as they're not hurting anyone else. But you dipshits won't support that philosophy. You dipshits keep trying to impose your Christ of fascist worldview on everyone else. Again, she is a Christian nationalist. So maybe if you think that individuals forcing their views on other people is a problem, you look in the goddamn mirror first, Marjorie. Jesus Christ. It seems like as of late, the state of Florida is going out of their way to cook up the most unconstitutional, draconian types of legislation just to see what they can and can't get away with. And it's genuinely disturbing. But thanks to civil rights attorney Alejandra Corbayo, she brought forward to all of our attention probably the most insane bill that I've ever seen. So the bill is HB 991 titled the Defamation, False Light and Unauthorized Publication of Name or Likeness Act, which was just introduced yesterday in Florida, focuses on suppressing journalism by lowering the threshold for legal defamation. Now, defamation specifically with regard to journalism seems to be the core goal of this bill. Just make it easier for journalists to get sued so that way they'll be disinclined from covering governments and using anonymous sources. But there's also another consequence of this legislation if it were to pass, and that is it would empower bigots to also sue anyone who accuses them of bigotry. 
So Alejandro Carballo explains, Florida has introduced the Empower Bigots Act, which I think is a more appropriate name, HB 991. It would classify accusations that someone engaged in discrimination as defamation per se, with $35,000 minimum in damages. If it involves LGBTQ people and someone's beliefs, truth is no defense. This is absolutely chilling. She continues, if someone calls you the F-slur or T-slur and you say they discriminated against you, they can now sue you for at least $35,000 and cite their religious beliefs. This would apply to the internet as well. This would empower bigots to target the LGBTQ community with impunity. This applies to the internet as well, so if the person is in Florida, you could be liable even if you have never stepped foot in Florida. For instance, calling Seth Dillon of the Babylon Bee transphobic on Twitter could make you liable under this bill since he lives in Florida. It gets even worse. It would presume anonymous sources are preemptively false. This would limit the ability of journalists to cover issues without fear of liability for using anonymous sources. This would silence journalists and those targeted by those in power. This bill also reworks the actual malice standard for public figures and tries to redefine public figures. It's a full-on attack against New York Times, V. Sullivan, and the First Amendment. This isn't the first time libel laws have been used to silence minority groups. Alabama tried to use libel to silence civil rights leaders and journalists. The case resulted in New York Times v. Sullivan. Florida wants to try again to silence minority groups. Yeah, so I feel like I don't need to provide you with my commentary. On its face, you can see how utterly absurd this is. This would literally empower bigots to harass LGBTQ people, and it would stifle free speech, stifle journalism. But that's the goal. So do you want to know how we were all terrified when Trump said we should open up the libel laws? This is DeSantis' state doing that, putting that into action. Now, as I stated, the bill was just filed yesterday. And at the time that I record this, there isn't legislative support for it. But the fact that the bills that they keep filing get progressively more insane kind of goes to show you how undemocratic the Republican Party is. It's not just Florida, it's all across the country, but it's like they're trying to compete with each other to see who can produce the most insane Orwellian type of legislation possible. And these folks are enemies of democracy. They are authoritarian, and that's what they want to do. Need I remind you that this bill was filed in the same week where Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about a national divorce where she basically spoke about her ideals for society, where gay teachers could be fired and you can ban people from voting if they move from a blue state to a red state. Now, Florida continues to fixate on things like this and lead the culture war while their state and people in it continue to suffer. For example, former Florida lawmaker Carlos Guillermo Smith says, Florida is now one of the least affordable states to live. Property insurance is soaring. Millions without health care. Instead of tackling these crises, Ron DeSantis Republicans are pushing new laws to ban pride flags in government buildings. So he fixates on non-issues, right? Creates solutions to problems that don't exist. And then he gets praised for it. His status has been elevated to national status, and there's speculation about him running for president now. Now, to be clear, Ron DeSantis didn't pen this legislation, but certainly Republicans in the state are following his lead. But all the people who are propping up DeSantis aren't focusing on his ability to govern or the Republican Party in Florida's ability to govern. It's just, well, they virtue signaled to us and pandered to us with regard to the culture war, so they're great. It's just 
insane to me. Now, of all people, billionaire J.B. Pritzker, who is the Democratic governor of Illinois, I think put it best about DeSantis. And I don't like to give credit to billionaires who buy power. But what he says here is absolutely correct. The truth is that we, we actually have a much better education system in Illinois than they have in Florida. We're ranked higher than they are. U.S. News and World Report ranks K-12 education in Illinois sixth in the country and number one among the largest states in the country. So he's got nothing to brag about when it comes to education. So, uh, so he moves on and tries to use this word woke. Uh, to describe everything. He doesn't even know what the word means and he has no definition of it. It's just anything he doesn't like is wokeism. And uh, all I can tell you is that I don't know what that means and frankly uh, what I can say about Illinois is that uh, we're a state that cares about equity, we're a state that cares about our families, we're making the investments that are required so that our youngest children will do better and better. Um, and I'm really excited about the direction of our state, as opposed to a state where they don't make the investments that are necessary to lift up their education system or their healthcare system. Yeah, so Florida may be at the forefront of the culture war, but their people are suffering as a result of that because Republicans in Florida refuse to focus on real issues, healthcare, education. And to the extent that they focus on education, it's not improving the quality of education, it's censoring what they deem offensive in education. It's just a joke, but this is exactly what we should expect from Christian nationalists and fascists. And it's horrifying, but we've all kind of grown accustomed to it. And this is kind of just the new normal in red states, but we shouldn't be comfortable with this. It should make us feel uneasy because it is brazenly unconstitutional. And in the event this law were to pass, I think that a court would block it easily, even a right-wing court, because it's that brazen in violation of the Constitution. Um, but regardless, this isn't necessarily about what they can and can pass with regard to legislation. It's signaling to their base that they will go as extreme as they need to be for their support. And it's just, uh, it's chilling. It is genuinely infuriating to me that Republicans insist that Joe Biden is in favor of open borders. And once he became president, he opened the borders because his policies with regard to immigration are arguably as cruel as Trump's. Case in point, Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains the Biden administration on Tuesday proposed a rule that immigrant rights groups, civil liberties organizations and some Democratic lawmakers condemned as an illegal attack on asylum seekers that resembles an inhumane policy pursued by former President Donald Trump. The new rule, unveiled by the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security, would assume that certain non-citizens who enter the United States without documents sufficient for lawful admission are ineligible for asylum. The proposed rule would encourage migrants to avail themselves of lawful, safe, and orderly pathways into the United States, or otherwise to seek asylum or other protection in countries through which they travel. The administration's summary of the rule states outlining conditions that broadly mirror a Trump-era transit ban that was ultimately blocked in federal court. Those who don't meet the more strict asylum eligibility requirements under the proposal would be subject to quick deportation. Now, the rule hasn't been adopted yet, but the Biden administration expects it to go into effect in May after a 30-day public comment period. Now, what makes this rule especially disgusting is that it looks a lot like Trump's transit ban, which the article laid out. But do you want to know who was behind Trump's transit ban, which a court blocked? White supremacist Stephen Miller. That's who the Biden administration is modeling their immigration policies after, presumably. 
it's just despicable. And it's so bad that Democrats are even condemning Joe Biden, including one former official from his administration. Democratic lawmaker Chuby Garcia writes, today's announcement by the Biden administration is a re-implementation of the Trump era policy that will ban people from requesting asylum, worsen conditions at the border, and return vulnerable people back to danger. POTUS must abandon this misguided policy now. Hashtag no asylum ban. And former Biden official Andrea Flores condemned the proposal on Twitter saying, when I joined the Biden administration, we cared about preserving access to asylum, not only because it was the law, but because we had evidence that banning new asylum seekers was not an operational solution to the challenge of irregular migration. Today, rather than make progress on addressing regional mass migration, the Biden administration has resurrected a transit ban that normalizes the white nationalist belief that asylum seekers from certain countries are less deserving of humanitarian protections. And she's exactly correct. Let me make this very clear. Seeking asylum is a human right, and it is unconstitutional to deny people the right to seek asylum. At least allow them to make their case. There's no guarantee that the U.S. government will accept it, but to not even let them make their case is deeply inhumane, and it's racist, quite frankly. Now, this isn't the first time in recent memory that Biden has pissed off his own party, which led to them surprisingly condemning him. For example, just last month, 77 Democrats signed an open letter condemning the Biden administration's cruel policies that limit the ability of migrants from Venezuela, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Cuba from legally migrating here. So in order to deal with the influx of migrants from these countries, he put caps on migration and put up more obstacles to them legally migrating here. So you can't have it both ways. You claim that they should migrate legally, but yet you make it more difficult for them to do that. So if they're fleeing violence, if they're fleeing an unstable political predicament, oftentimes because of our foreign policy, our militaristic policies in Latin America, then you have to allow them the ability to leave and apply for asylum. But the Biden administration is uh, not doing that. But this is predictable because this has been the status quo since Biden took over. Now, the silver lining is that this is so shamelessly unconstitutional that a court will very likely block it, or at least hopefully that will be the case. As NBC News explains, Kieran Zick, director of litigation at the National Immigrant Justice System, said that her group and partner organizations plan to work together again to fight any such rule, just as they fought the Miller version, referring to Steve Miller, and predicted that once again, the rule would not survive their legal challenge. If the proposed asylum ban rule does what we expect it to do, unlawfully deprive access to asylum based on manner of entry and or transit route, Zwick said, it would be invalid like the similar Trump administration rules that were found unlawful by federal courts. So here's hoping that a court blocks this rule as they did the similar Trump era rule, again, written by white supremacist Stephen Miller. Now, the more infuriating element of this story is that Mayorkas is pretending as if this isn't a transit ban. So they're doing the bad Trump era policies and then they're trying to gaslight everyone claiming mm, this isn't what it looks like. No, I think it's exactly what it looks like. And I've just got to go back to the GOP and the way that they claim that Biden supports open borders. This is evidence that Democrats need to stop being weenies. They need to actually grow spines and just do the humane policy, because regardless of how cruel you are, they're still going to lie. They're still going to accuse you of being weak on immigration. They're accusing Biden of having open borders when he's re-implementing Trump-era policies. 
So Democrats need to actually just do what's right. You see, the problem is that Biden isn't doing what's right, not because he's intimidated by Republicans, but because this is what he wants. These are the policies that he supports, which is why he's implementing it. And it's sad because Joe Biden is doing what Republicans want. But do you want to know who granted amnesty to millions of immigrants? Ronald Reagan. And yet he would be too extreme, too far left for even the Democratic Party in 2023 America. It goes to show you how cruel we've become and how we don't view people from other countries as equals, as human beings. It's just despicable. And we have no concern for their well-being. Again, after we, our foreign policies, destroyed their countries. Don't care. Doesn't matter. We're not going to clean up the mess that we made. We're just going to block them and um, wish them luck. Not even wish them luck. Give them the finger as we turn away their asylum requests. It's genuinely sickening. But this is predictable because um, Biden has been doing this since he took office. So I'm not sure how many of you are old enough to remember the log cabin Republicans, but they've been around for quite some time. And believe it or not, they're still around. And for those of you unaware, the log cabin Republicans is basically a bunch of gay Republicans who are trying to convince LGBTQ plus people that the GOP, contrary to popular belief, is not hateful and indeed are very inclusive of queer people. Now, the irony is that as they've tried to promote this message, they themselves have been marginalized by the Republican Party. They want nothing to do with them. They oftentimes struggle to get uh, venues at CPAC and whatnot. And this has been a long-term struggle, but they've persisted and they are hell-bent on convincing gay people that they love you. It's just, it's, it's laughable. It's a futile effort, but nonetheless, it is somewhat funny. So I can't not look at them in at least a humorous way, right? Like they're there for entertainment purposes more than anything, right? Because nobody believes what they're selling. Anyways, they're still around and they have an affiliate organization called Outspoken and Outspoken, they recently hired a bunch of ambassadors to, I guess, do outreach to youth LGBTQ plus people. To be honest, I don't know what the goal of this organization is, but it's an extension of the log cabin Republicans. And I'm going to let one of their ambassadors explain what the goal is overall. Today I'm excited to announce that I'm officially an ambassador for Outspoken. For those of you who don't know what Outspoken is, Outspoken is a collection of my fellow homosexuals and other LGBT variants, as they say these days, working together to shatter the ridiculous narrative that Republicans hate gay people because that narrative is several decades old and does not apply to the modern Republican Party. Together we're going to make the Republican Party based again. We're going to make the Republican Party iconic again, and I look forward to working with each and every person who's watching this video to destroy these narratives and to carry this new iconic based Republican Party to victory in 2024. Let's get back to winning again. I am convinced that this group is a psyop created by conservative straight actors to make queer people seem as insufferable as possible because even i as a gay man was watching that i felt homophobia like rising in my body so you know i feel like their mission if, if that is indeed the case it's, it's definitely working but he says that this group is trying to convince people that actually you know the gop they're down with queers 
They love gay people, actually. Um, now, he's one of multiple ambassadors, as I alluded to earlier. Other ambassadors include self-loathing gay and trans people like Buck Angel, who, quote, calls himself a female who lives as a man, which is just sad. But I mean, these are the types of folks who you'd expect to be at this organization. LGBTQ plus people who weaponize their identities to normalize GOP bigotry. And there's also this person who I guess is their attempt at satirizing the far left. Truly groundbreaking comedy here. But one individual kind of stands out even more so than the meme ambassador. And that is this woman, Isabella Riley. And the reason why she stands out is because she's not even LGBTQ and she's not pretending to be. In fact, she's openly homophobic. And before you say, well, Mike, you say every conservative is homophobic. Well, she actually identifies as homophobic. So when it was announced that she'd be an ambassador, this is how she uh, tweeted about it. She wrote on Twitter, happy to be the token straight homophobic bitch ambassador for outspoken. Now, we need to be clear. She's not just sarcastically calling herself homophobic because somebody on the left arbitrarily accused her of homophobia for no reason. She's saying that she's homophobic because she quite literally is homophobic. Case in point. Hey, faggot, are you are you being serious right now? You're going to say that our society is a homophobic dumpster fire? Our society literally puts faggots on a pedestal and worships them like they're God. The rainbow flag is everywhere. We love it. We love it. It's such BS to say that we're a homophobic society, that we are a homophobic society. I wish we were a homophobic society. And that's the goddamn truth. Mm -hmm. Now, look, I'm no expert, but as a gay man, I've got to say that her comments there, slightly sus. I, I think we have reason to believe that she is indeed homophobic, as she says she is. Now, let's go back to something that another ambassador said that we heard from earlier. Working together to shatter the ridiculous narrative that Republicans hate gay people because that narrative is several decades old and does not apply to the modern Republican Party. Hey, faggot, are you are you being serious right now? Yeah, what a ridiculous myth to think that the Republican Party is homophobic. I don't know why people would think this. What do you even say? It's almost like this is satirical, like this group was formed by The Onion and they actually responded to criticism and their response might actually be more bizarre than them hiring Moody in the first place. But before, before we get to that, I actually want to go to an op-ed written in the Washington Examiner by Brad Colombo because this is a gay conservative and he explains, I think eloquently so, that LGBTQ plus people are not a monolith and there is indeed queer people who are right wing. They're conservative. They're they're capitalist, right? They don't think that workers should own the means of production. They're against socialism and they support a free market, right? They support Republicans or would want to, but homophobia has been a barrier to getting their support. So outreach for the GOP is, is necessary, at least if you're a gay conservative. And he says, this is pretty weird. It doesn't make sense. In fact, it defies reason and logic. So let's get to what he says here. He writes, if you're confused, rest assured that everyone else is too. I reached out to both Moody and Log Cabin Republicans President Charles Moron requesting clarification and did not receive a response. The only conceivable explanation I can come up with is that they're doing this for attention. Frankly, the influence of Log Cabin Republicans on GOP politics has waned significantly in recent years, but the modest level of attention this stunt will have brought to its influencer program is surely not 
worth the destruction of whatever credibility Log Cabin had left. Many of us within the gay and transgender communities are not Democrats or liberals. Like any demographic, we are composed of people with a wide range of personal beliefs and values. Yet the current orthodoxy in the establishment LGBTQ community regards diversity of thought with sharp hostility. I disagree with that. He should check Twitter. Uh, that's something anyone who believes in individualism ought to push back on, and we need groups such as LCR to push back from within, but their self-immolation means that vital pushback won't happen or at least won't be viewed with any credibility. So you can almost sense this level of exasperation in Palumbo's op-ed here because he doesn't understand why the GOP doesn't have any arm, organizationally speaking, to actually try and reach out to LGBTQ plus people. And I think it's because at this point in time, it's hopeless. They've made it their mission to demonize queer people, especially trans people. So rather than even pretending, they're just giving up seemingly. And that's what I gathered by watching their response. So Right Wing Watch actually reported on Moody being hired as an ambassador first, I believe. And they responded outspoken, that is responded to them hiring Moody and their response is just so bizarre and I can't not conclude that they've gone full Joker mode at this point. Sisti from Outspoken USA. I'm your director of liberal outreach. Today I would like to give a gratitude post to journalist Kyle Mantila of Right Wing Watch for his impeccable skills at journalism in uncovering Isabella Riley Moody who is a known homophobe. She has just been appointed an ambassador for Outspoken USA. I have no idea how she slipped through the cracks, but I wanna thank you so much, Kyle, for uncovering this dirt. I'm gonna use my influence to do whatever I can to boot this homophobe out of our ranks. Thank you so much. Okay, I get that they're trying to meme, and I'm assuming that this person identifies as a comedian but where's the joke in that like there has to be some attempt at a joke i mean putting on goofy makeup and trying to make yourself seem like a caricature of a far left individual that's one thing but if there's no comedy that accompanies it then how do you expect to drive your point home and make people laugh it's just it's bizarre and really really cringeworthy but this is the GOP's attempt at reaching out to queer people. And if you go to their website, by the way, the Outspoken website, it's just like article after article bashing queer people and how outrageous and extreme they are. So, yeah, I think that the reason why there's no outreach to queer people from the GOP is because, contrary to what that first ambassador said, they hate us. And to stay with this party that has shown you time and again that they hold nothing but hate and contempt in their hearts for you. I don't know what else to call that besides stupidity and Stockholm Syndrome. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. 
There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.